Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello, I'm Mike Murphy, and welcome to USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future Election R&D Dialogue. We get paid by the number of words we jam into the title of our event. So today is what we call a a payday because we got a good title for a good event. I'm here joined with my friend, professional adversary, but partner at the USC Center for the Political Future, uh, Bob Schrum, the legendary Democratic consultant. And we're going to talk about everything that's going on in the election and take a few of your questions, because here we are, Bob, 40 days out, and every minute there's an earthquake. Um, We obviously had the death of really a a giant of American life, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, I'm a conservative, uh, but I can't help but admire uh, who she is and, and what she did. That, of course, has triggered not only mourning, but a huge political fight to fill a Supreme Court vacancy, one of the highest level battles you can have in Washington because it puts an imprint on the third branch of government, our judiciary in particular, the very important Supreme Court. So we'll get to that, but I wanted to start our discussion by talking a little bit about the state of the race and something that was published earlier today online. I tweeted it. I think you tweeted it because it's something we've talked about before. And I've, I've been talking about this for years, so I'm so happy they did it. Our friend Charlie Cook at the Cook Political Report joined up uh, with my erstwhile employers, NBC News, to create a interactive chart where you can look at the results of the 2016 election adjusted for the current demography of America. In other words, how the electorate has changed based on nothing else. I mean, on the, on the thing, you can find it on NBC News or at the Cook Political Report online. You can adjust for turnout. You can do your own modeling. You can whittle away hours on this. But if you just simply adjust the American electorate based on the exit polls from 2016 to the electorate we have now based on the, the change in racial uh, mixture between different voter groups, the change in age, you get a whole different outcome. Bob, you want to talk about it? Because I know we're both obsessed with this. Yeah, I mean, you have been saying for years, and I've been saying it too, and I don't know which of us said it first, but the Republican Party's in a demographic cul-de-sac, and that's what's really happened here. And when they do the adjustments, uh, just purely on the basis of demography, without taking a account of any of the issues, any of what hap- what's happened with Trump, any of uh, the stuff about COVID, anything else, just holding everything else neutral, uh, Biden would end up with 307 electoral votes. That is, if, with, if the 2016 electorate looked exactly like the 2020 electorate adjusted for the changes in race, sex, college education, et cetera. I think those are pretty important. I think that's a pretty important piece of data. The other thing that struck me this morning was the New York Times uh, has been doing a series of state-by-state polls, and they did three states where Trump should be in really good shape uh, this morning. And in Iowa, they have Biden ahead by three. Uh, if Biden wins yeah. Iowa, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, we know where it. the election's gone. Uh, Georgia is tied, and Texas, which Trump won by nine or ten last time, 
he's ahead by three. He's within the margin of error. So I think we, and the other piece of data that was fascinating to me was there was a new Pennsylvania poll that came out, uh, which shows Trump behind by six, Biden six ahead. But the really interesting thing was the internals. On every issue like handling race relations, law enforcement, handling COVID, et cetera, uh, Biden was ahead. Trump was ahead on one, the economy. Right. He was ahead by two points. You know, months ago, that would have been a much bigger advantage and was what the Trump campaign hoped they could ride to victory. Yeah, that Pennsylvania poll is exactly the kind of thing the Biden campaign is hoping for because it shows Trump's advantage on the economy. Still, in many voters' minds, the most important issue has been beat to a draw. Now, in other states, the advantage is higher, six to eight points, but that's an encouraging poll for Biden. Now, on the demographic issue, just to hit that one more time, what that means is if, if Trump has the same share of vote among white voters, African-American voters, Latino voters that he got on Election Day in 2016 per the exit polls, the size of those groups, not the voter share, just the, the size of how many participate, being held constant except for demographic change, Biden wins all those states that Trump narrowly won to have an upset win in the Electoral College and thus the presidency. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. He'd also win Florida, and uh, I, I think Arizona's like really close. So, you know, if you're Joe Biden, it's a fun day because you get to bring all your campaign people on the Zoom and say, all right, you knuckleheads, uh, if nothing <laughs> changes, I've won. So don't blow this thing. Nowhere to go but down. You know, in fact, nobody gets a raise unless I do better than that because it's already demographically way, way tilting my way. So that, that must be a morale booster uh, to the Biden campaign today. And I agree on Iowa. You know, the, 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 it's interesting. The Democrats are always obsessed on trying to win Texas. And because of demographic change, it may happen one day. It's not impossible for it to happen in this election. But what the Republicans are all worried about, they're not too worried about Texas. They think the Supreme Court fight that we're about to talk to helps them there. But they're very worried about Ohio. And it's yep. the same thing. If Biden is in a point where he's a couple, at a, at a point in the campaign where he is a couple points ahead in Ohio, that means he's definitely winning Michigan, means he's definitely winning Wisconsin. And, you know, the, the Des Moines Register poll, which is a highly respected poll, shows him tied in Iowa. This poll shows him slightly ahead. But either one, to be doing that good in, in, in there, means he probably is ahead two or three in, in Ohio. And it's kind of funny. We're a little bit back to the future where Ohio, which used to be the big swing state in the 90s, and Florida, which used to be everything, are back. Ohio's in play. And Florida is back, in my view, at least, as the most important state. Because if Biden can win there and he's narrowly ahead in the average of polls, about two points, I've seen private polling a little bit better. But if Biden pulls off Florida, it is so important because, one, no Republican, as Bob has heard me say a hundred times, has won the presidency without winning Florida in 96 years. Goes back to 1924. And second, Florida counts their absentee ballots, and they are a savvy state at absentee ballots. They've done it before. They're used to large numbers. It's a heavy absentee state, so nothing new. But they count them in real time. Mike, don't they count the ballots as they come in? Yes, and that's the key point, because on election night or noon the next day in Florida, unless it's a real super tight, you know, 50-vote deal, 
we're going to know with no ambiguity who won Florida. And that sets a real setup for some of the questions that might be as they count absentees that are counted, you know, later in some of the other states where the president could, and he's sure sending this hint, uh, make a little trouble about, I don't believe the count, it's all fraud. If Florida goes down, we're no fast. If it goes for Biden, then Trump is really, really in a, in a bad situation, and they'll take a lot of the energy out of the mischief he may make. So here we are, Ohio and Florida. Yeah, you know, what do you make of the fact that some Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, and uh, the leader, of course, was, was Mitt Romney, uh, went after what the president said yesterday, that uh, he wasn't going to concede, you know, he wasn't going to have a normal, peaceful transition, because all of the absentee ballots are frauds. And you have people like McConnell coming out saying, look, we're going to know who won the election, and we're going to have a peaceful transition. Yeah. There's an article in The Atlantic which raises all of the scenarios by which Trump could try to do this. But if he lacks the support of people in his own party to do this, uh, it seems to me it's almost impossible. Do you think those folks will stick by what they're saying? I do. There's a limit even to them. They've had plenty of occasions to disappoint. It's one of the reasons that I'm part of the never Trump world where we are where we're renting, not buying Democrat this year uh, for Joe Biden to, to stop Donald Trump because he's a threat to the rule of law and a madman. But I, I, the grownups will show up. And you, you, of course, you saw it from Mitt Romney. You're seeing a bit of it from Mitch McConnell now. Uh, others, uh, Liz Cheney w- was terrific. You know, you're seeing the people who have some idea about the Constitution showing up. Now, I will say uh, quickly that the Trump, as horrible as the Trump comments were, because there were a window into his empty soul and the fact he has no idea what a president is supposed to do, I think some of it was Trump kind of vamping his drunk uncle routine. I don't think he was calculating sending a message about ignoring the, uh, ignoring the election and, and playing to every paranoia about bad behavior. But his, his, the very fact he could stumble into that, not have an alarm bell go off in his head, that, wait a minute, I can't say that, I'm president, the core tenet of our democracy is peaceful transition of power, is telling in of, of itself. So I'm glad, a little late, by the way, other than Romney, that the Republicans are making it clear, but it's important. And you do, that Atlantic article you mentioned, which I thought reminded me of Y2K, you know, it was very apocalyptic, and state national guards are going to seize electoral, or have armed conflict between the New York and the Texas National Guard. I mean, I'm, I'm arguing by facetiousness here. It didn't say that. But I, I, if I were a liberal, I would try not to be neurotic about that. I would focus all my nerves energy into campaigning and helping assist the Biden campaign in those five states to win the damn election rather than worry about a coup. Because it's easy to get worked up in that stuff, but it's not that productive. Well, of course, as you and I always say, the Democrats are the neurotic party. And right. having been right. through 2016, there's this terrible fear that somehow or other the polls are wrong our USC Dornsife track uh, this morning has Biden about 9.5 points ahead. The Quinnipiac poll has him about 10 points ahead. Uh, let's talk about one of the really big developments of the week, and that was the tragic death, tragic for me, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I think has had an imprint on the consciousness of the country that very few Supreme Court justices have ever achieved. I mean, she became the notorious RBG, and they made documentaries about her that packed theaters. Uh, the conventional wisdom was 
that this is a great opportunity for Republicans, that uh, this will be about abortion, will help turn out their base. But there were a few contrary indications to that. One was that from the time she died through Sunday midday, Act Blue had raised, I think, $60 million, which is just an unbelievable sum of money. Uh, and Biden did something that was very interesting to me. He went out and gave a speech. He mentioned the choice issue. But he focused really on the fact that the court on November 7th is going to hear a case on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And if it's thrown out, 100 million people with pre-existing conditions will, could lose their coverage. People who've had COVID and have scarring on their lungs would suddenly be, be in that category, pre-existing conditions. And he went right back to the issue that powered Democrats in the 2018 midterms when they picked up 41 House seats. I thought it was a very, very smart move, a little akin to the move he made during the violence and the rioting which he's repeated today after what happened in Louisville. Yeah, no, there's so much politics packed into the, the Ginsburg seat becoming open, and I agree with you that she was a true giant in American life. Uh, she earned her, her positive notoriety, though I will say as a conservative, it always helps to be a liberal. You know, uh, what I love about her is, because the pop culture industry is always going to build a liberal icon, not a conservative one. Uh, I love the fact that her best friend on the court was in many ways the, uh, the intellectually equally impressive Antony Scalia. And she was so interested in an, a, another, you know, interesting and complicated mind that that's who she became friends with. And it's a great signal of the American democracy. It's how things ought to be where, you know, your enemy, uh, it, it, your, excuse me, your opponent in ideology is not your enemy in life. In fact, can be a close friend. So, on the politics of it, um, complicated, but as usual, I think conventional wisdom was wrong, and I think we agree on this. So, first of all, the, the fulcrum electorate for Trump is the suburbs. That's where he got killed in 18. That's why we've lost so many governor races. That's why we, frankly, never had a particularly good election since Trump got uh, elected president. We keep losing congressional races and even in special elections in safe Republican districts, the Republicans underperform what they should get. There's been a lot of, the country's been trying to punish the Republicans for Trump for a long time. COVID made it worse. Now we have a big Supreme Court fight. Now there's one debate about how dare they try to shove it in late and all that. I'm going to leave that aside. I think there's, uh, there are plenty of problems there that can be condemned. But in the raw politics of it, if Donald Trump's key path to getting his campaign back to striking distance to win is to win back the suburbs. A huge fight uh, over abortion rights will not help him because the problem in the suburbs for him is college-educated white women, many of whom are independent voters or it's what we call soft suburban Republicans. So th this fight does not help him there. It does energize the Republican base. But the base that likes Trump is already energized. Moving Alabama from 63 to 65% does not change the Electoral College. Trump is going to be on kind of the, the reverse side of the leverage that, that uh, Hillary Clinton had, where she did a great job running California up, but it didn't win her any, any votes in the Detroit or Milwaukee suburbs to win the states that actually drive the Electoral College. So it, it is an intensity strategy, which is not what he needs. Now, 
you made a great point, and I totally agree with this. The Democrats figured out their Star Wars laser sword that was chopping all these Republican congressmen down in the midterms was the threat to take away pre-existing conditions. The Democrats have learned that people don't love Obamacare, but they love pre-existing conditions, and they don't understand the connections. So don't campaign for Obamacare, campaign against losing pre-existing conditions. So they're winding up that fastball pitch again in the context of a Supreme Court fight, which is a legitimate issue because it is a case coming to the Supreme Court. The Supremes have to decide whether to overturn a local decision that blocked Trump's uh, attempt to get rid of the ACA, Obamacare. So how do those politics work? Well, if Biden can, Biden's got two goals, I think. One is 40 days out, Biden's ahead. He's ahead in all the places that count, albeit some narrowly. So what does Biden have to do? Every day that he can rag the puck, as they say in Canada, and, and have nothing happen, it's a great day for Biden. So now Biden has a, a, a tool to go on the offense and deny Trump a topic that could hurt Biden and talk about losing pre-existing conditions. That's why President Trump today is giving a speech on health care. He might be doing it right now, I think, as we record this or soon. And my guess is he's going to say, with the magic of an executive order, I hereby forbid anybody to take away pre-existing conditions, which is kind of a canard, but they're trying to build some shield against what is going to be coming on ads and press and everywhere else. So I think, I think the politics of this thing, this, this Supreme Court fight, net-net work a lot better for Biden. There are some Republican states where you can make an argument that an energized pro-life uh, movement over a Supreme Court nomination could be good for the Republicans, particularly Iowa, if Joni Ernst is in real trouble. But it, it, it's not a home run anywhere in, in any state in play. So yeah, I'd rather be Biden. And I think when you do the, the pre-existing conditions argument and you connect it to the Supreme Court nomination, you're going to get some of the non-college educated white women who tend to be for Trump, they're going to start worrying. Yeah. Because they really worry about health care. And, and COVID just raises the, the, the stakes here. I want to talk about debates, but first I want to, I want to touch on COVID. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me is that, and you, you're the one who told me this, that in some focus groups, you know, like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, COVID was kind of fading as an issue. And it's second on the list of issues in, in, our, uh, in our poll. Uh, but Donald Trump insists on bringing it up over and over and over again. And said the other day, well, it's no big deal. It only kills old people. And then he also said it doesn't affect anybody. So I think what he's doing is getting in the way of his own message, and, which they would prefer to focus on the economy and law and order, although Biden's done a very good job on law and order. Why, why does he do this? Well, I don't think there's any strategy there. I think he works on instinct. Cable TV provokes him and he, he reacts to it. And, you know, most, as we both said before, most governors have actually done well politically during this crisis because people tend to look to the local governor to be a leader, and the ones who have been smart enough to support public health and act in a mature and sober way have seen their poll numbers go up. It's been the opposite with Trump because he's done the opposite. I, uh, I don't think he can give it up. You know, what we see in those focus groups is among swing voters, and this is one mistaken tone I think some of the Democratic groups are making, 
they do not blame Trump for COVID as much as like an Anderson Cooper would every night on TV. Their, their opinion, and remember in politics, perception is reality for voters, and their perception is that COVID could have happened to any president. Trump didn't cause it. It's not entirely his fault. Now, you can get into a debate with them about how incompetent his response has been, but they give him a little more slack, and so they, they get very twitchy. And I, I sat through seven focus groups in Florida of undecided voters, and they don't like the idea that the death toll is Trump's fault. That actually helps Trump a little, and I think the Democrats have to watch their tone. Trump is doing himself a lot of other damage on COVID. Uh, so just staying out of his way, kind of the point you made works. And then, and finally, I had one more point on the Supreme Court. I just want to, on the politics of it. There is one tactical thing. The one group in Florida that Trump has improved his standing with in a meaningful way is Cuban Americans and, and, and other Hispanics in the Miami media market in Broward and Dade counties. If Trump were to nominate Barbara LaGoya, one of the shortlist contenders for the Supreme Court, and we get a bunch of televised hearings of Democrats being really tough to a very popular Cuban-American judge from Miami. Uh, this will not help solve a political problem Joe Biden has, which is the main thing keeping Florida a tight race for him. I think Donald Trump, with his never-ending complexity and studious nature of studying you know, legal precedent to pick a nominee, probably figures I'll take the one from Miami for the politics of it. The Republican establishment is more comfortable with Amy Coney Barrett, who they know and was kind of runner-up to Brett Kavanaugh. So Mitch McConnell's pushing her hard. But it'll be interesting to see where Trump lands on that, because there's an argument the better political move uh, is Judge LaGoya of Florida. But I think another thing Trump wouldn't mind is that fight, purely to take attention off COVID, because as you say, Trump can't do it himself. Every time he has an opportunity, he pushes the campaign back there. When I think a Cuban-American judge versus Kamala Harris, and let's talk about the economy because that's the issue, uh, would be the smartest move for Trump. I just doubt he has the discipline to get there. And I'm not sure McConnell will let him because he seems to be very locked in, at least from the leaks we're reading, uh, into Amy Coney Barrett, who could be a little, little more controversial, uh, very telegenic, good presenter, but she has some positions I think the Democrats will be shameless in pounding on. I hope that what happens if, if she's the nominee is that they do pound on those positions because the one mistake I think Democrats could make uh, in this confirmation process, the one big mistake, is she's a member of a charismatic uh, group inside the Catholic Church. Uh, someone alleged yesterday uh, that it inspired the Handmaid's Tale. I don't think that's true. Uh, that's a stretch, but yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. But I think they ought to stay away from that and focus on her positions. I don't think they should get, into the, get to the place where Republicans could say they're attacking her because she's a Catholic. Right. When, right. in fact, the Democratic nominee is a Catholic, the Democratic vice presidential nominee in, in uh, uh, 2016, 2012, 2008 was a Catholic, and the last justice appointed by a Democratic president was also a Catholic. Uh, one other thing I want to mention before debates, and I saw this stat yesterday, and it blew me away. Trump is spending $213,000 a day on ads. Biden is currently spending $6 million yeah. a day on ads. How big a difference is that going to make? Oh, it's huge. I mean, remember, we're in an election about 
six states and maybe a few that they try to grab in October if they're freakishly close, like in Ohio, um, you know, Georgia, places like that. On the Trump side, they think they have a shot to take states that were in 16 for the Democrats, in my view, a longer shot, but they have interest in Nevada, New Hampshire, and Minnesota because the polls there show competitive-ish races. But look, when the long multi-volume history, I expect at least eight volumes, maybe 15, of the Trump incompetence in the Trump years is written, there will be two or three volumes on the campaign, the Trump campaign. And one full volume will be on the eight, Hundred million. I'm going to repeat that. Eight hundred million dollars that the Trump campaign spent before the Republican convention. Now, I am a believer in summer spending. The Obama campaign showed it can be very effective, but the problem is this spending was not only sloppy on cars and drivers for various in-laws and yes men and all that, uh, and all the other stuff they wasted money in in a kind of a Romanoff, you know, palace of diamonds kind of way. They also spent a ton of money on Facebook. Now, there was tremendous Democratic bedwetting about this in the summer because the theory the Democrats had was, oh, there's a very sophisticated voter targeting and segmenting uh, operation going on. We're way behind. We need to spend more. Panic, panic, panic. Well, what some of us who'd been around the Republican Party kept saying and were totally ignored because, oh, you don't get it. They're very sophisticated. Trump's a genius. They have a big plan. You guys have no idea. Those of us who have actually worked in the Republican Party said, Democrats, you can calm down. They've got, a, they've got a Facebook advertising guy running the campaign out of the fundraising world. And the, the Republican Party was built on small-dollar direct mail in the 80s. Dear retired Marine lieutenant, please send $18. The Russians are already in Kansas. And that has moved to the Internet. So what they were spending the bulk of that money on were Facebook ads to recruit more donors small donors, 25, 50 bucks. And it becomes a feedback circle. You spend 20 to raise 25 and you get more donors. The problem with that is the people who are most likely to donate to you while they vote for you tend to be base voters. They don't enlarge with message your, your vote. So a huge amount of money was wasted on that. And then they ran a lot of television that was ineffective because their media consultants, Donald Trump, and they'd show him an ad and he'd say, I like the blue one, I don't like the pink one, and that one I, I should look taller. That, that was the system. So they blew $800 million. They fired the campaign manager because they couldn't fire the son-in-law, who was actually the brains behind the fiasco. And now they've got a new slightly more technically competent campaign manager. But as you say, and I apologize for the long windup here, they got a cash problem now. They went from having a huge lead. The other bedwetting in the summer was Joe Biden can't raise any money. And now Biden is beating him on the air. It's, you know, oh, what, uh, you know, 12 to 1. And then you've got the, the other groups. You know, like we just spent $4 million bucks in Tampa and, and a few other target things in Florida, Republican voters against Trump. You, you've got several other groups. You've got Mayor Bloomberg in Florida with $100 million. So Biden has the megaphone advantage now on the candidate side. Trump still has it on the president side. But half the time, Trump uses the megaphone to, you know, talk about not leaving office after he loses the election or drink Clorox. So he doesn't use the megaphone very well. It's been a real lucky break for Biden as, again, he tries to rag the puck. And now Biden has the muscle to push this pre-existing condition thing to define the Supreme Court that way and eat up 20 of the next 40 days, denying Trump much offense. You know, uh, let's talk about the debates, because I yeah. think they're going to be a, a critical 
piece of this. They're not always critical, by the way. Uh, by most accounts, John Kerry won the three debates in 2004. He narrowly lost the election when he lost Ohio. Uh, and Biden, uh, you know, has been has gotten some grief because the last few days he hadn't been out there a lot publicly. I think what he's been doing is very disciplined debate prep uh, with a team where you have a couple people designated to talk. You're not getting advice from 20 or 30 people all at the same time, which can really mess you up in debate prep. Uh, and I suspect that Trump, Trump's debate prep is to sit around the Oval Office, say, what do you think about this to whoever happens to wander in, or call somebody on the telephone. Uh, and the other thing the Trump campaign has done that has absolutely perplexed me, and, and actually a couple of their spokespeople have tried to roll this back, but then the president does it himself, talks about Sleepy Joe, he can't think, he can't talk, lowering expectations for him. What do you expect out of these debates, and what do you think Biden has to do? That's a great question. I agree Biden is probably in debate prep. If he's not, shame on them, because it's an advantage they have. They have time to prep, and Trump doesn't have the inclination. This, by the way, is, as you know, a pattern. Generally, incumbent presidents don't do so well in the first um, when running for re-election in the first debate because they're, it's much more fun to be president. You know, he can call up and wish Putin a happy birthday. Kim Jong-il bought a new Bentley. He wants to see pictures. You know, he's got a lot of Trump playpen Oval Office stuff to do as opposed to debate prep where staffers make you do things. So they tend to show up arrogantly. Obama did this and get clobbered. With Trump, my guess is it'll, it'll be worse, although there is danger for Biden. Biden is not nearly as well-defined as Trump. So if Biden stumbles around uh, and, and makes some debate mistakes, this debate on the 29th is early enough that it then gives Trump what Trump is desperate for, something to work with in October, to be able to launch an offense, to move the debate away from fire me, I'm crazy, to, hey, there's some problems with Biden too. That's Trump's dream, and the debate is hopefully, from Trump's point of view, a way to get into that with a bad performance. Now, if Biden is crisp and strong, he'll wipe out the Sleepy Joe thing. Trump has totally set that up like a T-ball to be knocked way out of the field. But if Biden is bad, it'll reinforce it, and Trump will be in the driver's seat for a couple of days on the campaign, and it'll be down to Biden to kind of reclock things. Now, the last point is the key question, I think. How do you debate Donald Trump? It was like my old, my old friend and Trump supporter, Dennis Miller, the comedian, used to say, it's like playing checkers with Charlie Manson. He makes a couple of pretty good moves. You're thinking not bad. And then he tries to kill you with one of the pieces. So, you know, it, with Trump, the normal rules of, you know, well, that fact is wrong. Actually, you voted. You know, all the normal stuff doesn't work because Trump will just howl like a banshee and switch onto an insult about his son or something. So it's much more a debate about tone and strength. And I believe the first 10 minutes of taking some control by having some quick jabs at Trump to put him on the defensive. And they, they've been telegraphing this, that Trump's a trust fund baby, Biden's self-made, you know, that Trump doesn't tell the truth. So I think if Biden can put him back on his heels where it gets surly Donald uh, and defensive Donald, which will be great for Biden. But if, if Trump can get under Biden's skin and get that Irish temper going, Trump could score a little. So Biden's got to wrestle with the pig. As the old joke goes, you know, you don't want to because you both get dirty and the pig likes it. But Biden's got to have some pig handling techniques here that are unlike any debate he's ever had in his life.
Yeah, I think there are ways to do it. I think in the debate prep, uh, they're doing everything they can to get him to lose his temper. So he'll learn not to lose his temper uh, and will be restrained. And I also think if uh, Trump does something like attack his son, Bo, uh, say, you know, he didn't he wasn't really in combat. And, I mean, you know, and all that. And I'm sorry he's dead, but he wasn't really in combat. I think that could backfire very badly on Trump. And I could see Trump doing something like that. Oh, yeah. I've been predicting that particular line of attack. And it's all down to Biden if he can control his temper, but harness some of his obvious love for his son and his passion to go back to Trump and, you know, remind the only the only beach Trump ever landed on was Studio 54. Uh, Captain Bone Spurs. You know, it's not a mistake. 500 military leaders, including some of Trump's own unify, uh, uniform military from the Joint Chiefs, came out and endorsed Joe Biden today. You know, you can call Trump a, a traitor adjacent president. So for Biden, it's all offense. Very little defense, I think, is the key and the right tone. Reagan did this brilliantly in his 1980 debate with Carter. And I don't want to compare Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump in any other respect. But Carter went in there, and his strategic necessity, he thought, was to say uh, Reagan's a warmonger. Uh, Reagan is an enemy of Social Security and Medicare. Reagan's an enemy of nonproliferation agreements. He's just too dangerous to be president. And Reagan did a very good job on the warmonger stuff all through the debate. And then when he got attacked on Medicare, and actually the attack was kind of accurate that he hadn't been for Medicare, Reagan did that famous there you go again line, which wasn't just about Medicare. It in essence said all the things you're saying about me in this debate are wrong. Uh, Biden's going to need some equivalent of that, I think, instead of chasing uh, Trump around saying you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied. I think he can do it a number of times, but, you know, it's got to be almost something like all you have is lies. Uh, it can't. He can't answer every specific lie. He can't become the grand fact checker. Uh, oh, I agree. Fact checking means nothing to Trump. It's like a squirt gun against him. Right. It it is amazing. Someone pointed out to me that uh, in 2000, in the in the first debate, when Al Gore said he went to a forest fire disaster with James Lee Witt, the head of FEMA, and it turned out he'd gone with James Lee Witt's deputy. Gore got hung out to dry for for an inaccuracy, an exaggeration. That's small ball stuff compared to what we're seeing now. But I think we ought to turn this over to, to our audience and let them ask some questions. All righty, let's do that. Bob likes to talk about small engine repair and professional <laughs> volleyball, so we'll take those too. All right, so here we go. They're pouring in. They're pouring in. But before, because now you're all so fascinated with the questions, I'm going to do a quick I've learned this from podcasting, a quick little teaser ad. If you want to help us at the USC Center for the Political Future, where particularly now in COVID, we're doing a lot of these online events and programming, but we do a whole bunch from our Dornsife poll to zillions of student internships. Uh, during the campaign last summer, we even uh, sent 11 students out to work in politics in the Iowa caucus, a life-changing experience for them. So if if you care about kind of helping us do our work to turn kids onto politics and instruct them in a world where your opponent is not your enemy, which is how Bob and I operate, then support us. And a great way to do it is to join the Center for the Political Future Center Leadership Circles. Now, your donations fund all that good stuff we do, and you help so many people 
uh, in our Trojan community, enter the world of public service, do internships and learning more about practical politics from our fellows and, and our staff. So you can just go to our website. Uh, you can check out our Twitter uh, feed. They're easy to find and you can learn all about it. We'd love to have you in the center leadership circle. And by the way, part of that is we do secret briefings on our poll and secret briefings from Bob and I, so you get an up-to-date report on what's going on in the campaign. All right, so question time. This is from Anonymous. Uh-oh, somebody wants to be in the cabinet. I think Anonymous might be my favorite governor, Gina Raimondo. <laughs> is there any value for Biden to announce some of his key cabinet positions as we get closer to November 3rd? I would say no. But to show the diversity in talent and leadership he'd bring to his cabinet. Thanks for these conversations. Really enjoy them. Oh, and this question is from Susan Segal. Sorry about that, Susan. Bob, what do you think about announcing a cabinet now? Absolutely not, because what you do is you give Trump uh, and the Trump campaign lots of other targets to shoot at. You'll have a kind of vetting process where they'll attack uh, somebody because they once said something. There's no way Biden can vet all these people at this point. So uh, this is an idea that, that comes up periodically. In theory, I think it's not a bad idea. In practice, I think it's an idea that could backfire too easily. Yeah, I'm totally with you. The problem is it becomes a way for the press to make the campaign about, oh, it turns out that Bob Strum, you know, did this thing in 1983, and then we have silly stories for three days. So right now, if you're Biden, you're landing a big 40, 747 in clear weather. You don't want to take any risks. You want to keep your foot on Trump's throat and just execute that every day. Now, I have said for a while, and I... I think the Biden campaign could still do it. I, th I wish they would have. If they could knock this economy thing down a few more points, it would be good because the, the perception of being stronger in the economy is the one filament that's holding up the Trump spider uh, in some of these closer states like Florida and Arizona and North Carolina. So I think Biden ought to announce an economic recovery team of proven names, pre-vetted names. Uh, to show he's really got the A-team to go to work the minute the Trump circus leaves town. You know, the Tim Geithners, the Bob Rubens, the Warren Buffetts, really respected people, balanced for diversity. Gina Raimondo, she'd be very good, best governor in America on the Democratic side. For those of you who don't know, Mike was promoting Gina Raimondo for vice president relentlessly for month after month after month. Even Gina wasn't, but she would have been much better than Kamala Harris. Check out Hacks on Tap to hear why. Anyway, point is, a surrogate operation like that to close the race on would be a good idea. But on the cabinet, I'm totally with Bob. All right, here is a question from Diane Wallace. Really enjoying the conversation. Thank you, Diane. Are either of you or both of you concerned that climate change is not a topic of the debates? Bob? Uh, I think it will come up, not in the first debate, but unless Biden brings it up, and he very well may in the context of, of of COVID, their records. You know, one, one of the Wallace uh, topics, the re record of the two candidates, means they can talk about anything. Uh, and so he could do it there. But I have no doubt that it will come up in one of the other debates. But here's what's happened with climate, despite the hurricanes, despite the fires out here. There's only so much room at the top of people's attention span. And when you have COVID, when you have the, the, the racial divisions in the country, when you have the riots, which, as I said earlier, I think that issue that, which Trump thought was going to be a magic bullet for him 
hasn't been because it's been handled very well by Biden. And then you have the Supreme Court nominee and you have the economic effects of COVID. There's just not a lot of room at the top of the list uh, for people to be focused on climate change. But I have no doubt that it will come up in the subsequent presidential debates if it doesn't in the first one. The first debate is really critical. That's where if, if Biden performs the way he performed against Bernie Sanders, as Mike said earlier in the last primary debate, as Mike said earlier, that whole Sleepy Joe issue is gone. Right. No, I totally agree. Now, on climate change, Bob is right. It's not a top of mind issue, but it's important. It's important to Biden's voters. He will mention it. Uh, and he'll try to draw a contrast between he believes in science and Trump does not ask anybody who's even worked in the White House on COVID. That said, you got to be a little careful with climate change closing an election because the metal-bending states do not see the climate change issue quite the way my Prius-driving and Tesla-loving friends in Los Angeles do. So you don't want to scare somebody who's bending metal north of Detroit, Macomb County, uh, is, 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 does not think they've got a future as an eco-friendly puppeteer after being retrained for the new green economy. So there's danger there. Biden ought to stay generic. He's got a plan he can talk about, but keep his foot on Trump's throat on issues that don't give Trump an ability to mount an offense in the Great Lakes. Uh, okay, from, uh, let's see, here's a question. The latest Daybreak poll showed the Supreme Court lower down the list of issues of top importance to voters. Do you anticipate its importance will look different in the next iteration, given the death of RBG, we talked about this a little bit, but Bob, what do you think? You think it's moving up this week or not? Yeah, I think it will move up. We're doing two different kinds of polls. One is a daily tracking poll, and the other are, are, are some individual polls uh, focused on the impact of issues on the race. And when the next one of those comes out, uh, I think the Supreme Court will naturally move up people's attention span and their priorities, because it's going to be a huge story. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think so. Part of it is the Supreme Court is kind of what you see in it. Some people don't like the process of ramming it through late. Other people are worried about the life issue. Other people are worried about, and Biden will try to grow this pie, how it could affect their health insurance and pre-existing conditions. Other constitutional conservatives are worried about dangerous progressives on the march, and can the court kind of slow it down as they see the House and Senate potentially uh, moving to the left with the Democrats. So, you know, it's kind of a, what it is as an issue is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. I do think one thing I would caution people, every day on cable television, there's a lot of hysterical ranting and raving because in their business model, they have to cover every day like it's the biggest day of the campaign. Which breaking means, news. Yeah, everything's breaking a news. siren. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Biden today dropped chopsticks at an event embarrassing his host. Breaking news. Um, so you got to be careful. I, I, I joke around. Remember the Woodward book lit cable TV on fire. Uh, and the Woodward book's important. It tells us a lot of horrible things. It's important for history. But uh, in my hometown of Detroit, Woodward is a big avenue where they do the classic car races. Um, so... Sometimes the stuff, if you've got wallpaper of MSNBC, of my beloved NBC News, or CNN, or Fox, I know a couple of you are watching, uh, whatever your, your uh, preferred um, uh, entertainment news channel, and I'm all for all of it, 
careful about what they're obsessing on every day because often out in the real world of swing voters, it's not nearly that hysterical about the twists and turns of the daily campaign. So you can be misdirected a little bit, and a lot of the Supreme Court coverage coming forward will be, will be part of that. Uh, okay, here we go. I was waiting for this question. This is what I like to call the Lancaster, or Seven Days in May. Great movie. Good one to rent right about now, about an attempted military coup in the United States. The question is from Kathleen Beck, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name. If Trump won't step down for a peaceful transition, then what happens and how would we get him to leave? Uh, there's a lot of crazy paranoia about this. I've got some opinions, but Bob, why don't you start? Uh, I think if he loses, he'll leave. Uh, I think he's a classic bully. He's saying all of this stuff, and if the voters give him his comeuppance, he's going to have to go. I think people in his own party would tell him he had to go. Uh, I think that the, the, the military, which takes an oath to defend the Constitution, to uphold the Constitution, not to... Uh, do anything a president says. In fact, they're told they can't execute unlawful orders. Uh, I don't think, and it would be unfortunate if the military got involved, but they, I think, would be a last line of defense saying, look, you lost the election, you got to go. Uh, there may be litigation in, you know, Trump trying to litigate uh, the, the validity of absentee ballots. I think he would lose that litigation. I think yeah. he'd probably lose Gorsuch and, and, and Kavanaugh on a question like that. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So what could happen is he could make a, not a lot of noise, particularly about Pennsylvania, where there are going to be some issues. But if Florida goes big, it'll be apparent he's just howling at the moon. But then the Republican Party's tired of him, too. And if he is lost, um, I think he's going to find a fair, fairly few number of defenders. Now, there are all kinds of theories. You can read that Atlantic article where the Republican states all put on their Satan hoods and their state legislators appoint Russian robot electors who, you know, you can get into a lot of crazy stuff. But the bottom line is, I think he'll, he'll, he'll get three visitors that day who will offer to pour him a drink of whiskey. One will be Mitch McConnell, who <laughs> will say, it's done, sir. We're going to do a restart here. Um, get out. Two will be somebody from the Pentagon. I worked at the Pentagon. I was a consultant to the Department of Defense. I met a lot of three- and four-star generals. They're not idiots. They're politicians, and they very much understand the role of the military here, and they will tell you if you bump into one of them, we don't take an oath to the president. So uh, it'll be clear that he is alone, um, and the third visitor will be a lawyer representing the Southern District of New York, which is looking at them on federal tax evasion charges, and they might make the Nixon deal, which is, Donald, why don't you go out the back door and have a good cry? We got a new president to send in here. We have a little steam cleaning to do, too, of the room, and uh, we're going to plead out the, the tax charges on you. Uh, it's a little bit, of, a little hunk of rotten cheese to kind of pull the rat out of the house so you don't have to spear them and get blood everywhere. So I, I think it's going to be handled. And if I were a bedwetting Democrat, I would focus my attention on winning the damn campaign, not worried about a coup. And if he tried something like that, we have strong institutions in the country, including in a lot of states, by the way, the Republican Party. I talk to a lot of them. There's a huge frustration level because he knows, they know, they, they haven't had the guts to fight him because that's suicide, but they know he's kind of killed the party too. So um, worth watching. 
uh, worth keeping an eye on Barr, worth trying to find a fix in Pennsylvania, but not nearly the paranoia uh, festival that is fun for the Atlantic and, and hyperactive internet journalists to foment. Let me add two sentences to that. One of the, the scenarios in the Atlantic article is that in states like Pennsylvania, the legislature would just ignore who the voters voted for, and they would appoint a slate of Trump electors. Most politicians actually believe in their own self-preservation. And if you did that, the ne- and you engaged in that, you were part of that, the next time you had to face the voters, you might as well not run. And so I don't think they'd do it. Yeah, and what a lot of these guys do with women, if you're a state rep in Pennsylvania or Michigan or whatever, you're out there and you're spending half your time explaining to the Farm Bureau that you know he's wrong on soybeans, but, you know, he's doing okay in China. The phrase you've said the most in your campaign is, I sure wish he'd stop tweeting. You're spending half your time apologizing for the guy. And you're, you're, once it's clear there's a loss, you don't want to fight to the last man. You want to change the channel and get him out of there and try again and try to save your own skin. And a lot of these, these folks are kind of Rotarian, friend-making, local guys. They got a car lot or an insurance office. They don't want the headache of some last stand, insanity, banana republic stuff. So it, it's kind of like the Sopranos. When all Tony's capos start going to jail, nobody's making any money. The bad things happen to Tony. Trump loses the election. They won't be able to get rid of the corpse quick enough, in my view. Uh, okay, a question from Max Geshwind. Trump's real clear politics approval rating average is currently just over 45%, continuing a slow upward trend since July. Does the steady rise in his, in his approval number forecast how he'll perform in November. You know, Bob, I didn't know it was at 45. I think we can call the election for Trump. I think it's going to happen now. No, I don't mean to make fun of you, Max. That is a good question. The real, it's good to average these polls, but the problem is you're averaging bad polls with good ones. And once in a while, there'll be some Rasmussen or other poll that show Trump at 59% American's hero, and it knocks it up for a few days. The real number is generally a couple points lower than that. And it almost never goes any higher than that. That's the cul-de-sac you stuck in. Bob? I agree with that. I'd have to look at the polls that have been averaged in the real clear politics. But most of the other data I've seen, our data, the Quinnipiac data, uh, would have Trump at kind of, you know, his approval's kind of where his vote is, about 42. Yeah. Yeah, about 42. We got two more, I think, in the time allowed. The first one is a question, a great one, a lot of people's mind. And then, then we have a student question, which I want to try to get to. Maybe we can, we're trying to go quicker here to get three in. This is from a, a, Anonymous again. Mail-in ballots continue to be perceived as controversial, flawed, or somehow favoring Democrats. Can you talk about how, the latest findings on whether voters should trust voting by mail? Bob, what are you going to do? How are you going to vote? I vote by mail most of the time. I think what I'll do is vote by mail, and there's a drop-off box in Homby Park, a couple blocks from where I live, and we'll probably just drive up and drop the the ballots in that drop-off box. Uh, I think that we have a long history of mail voting in Washington, Oregon, California, and in fact, it was an engine that Republicans used all the time. Right. And Mike will tell you a lot of Republicans are very frustrated with Trump's attacks on mail-in in ballots because they worry that it's going to keep some of their folks from casting a vote. 
They're not going to decide to go out and risk COVID in order to vote, but they're not going to trust mail-in ballots. Uh, I, I, the only danger with mail-in ballots, frankly, is that too many of them may get thrown out because somebody thinks a signature doesn't exactly match the signature that's on file. In, in 1960, uh, the networks thought, everybody thought, that Kennedy had carried California. And when the absentee ballots were all finished counting a week later, he'd lost it, I think, by 34, 35,000 votes. Uh, so we, we have a long history of mail-in ballots. Started during the Civil War, by the way, and it made the difference for Abraham Lincoln in 1864. All the troops, the Union troops, voted by mail. Yeah, I, I am not worried about mail-in ballots with a few caveats. There's some trickery in Pennsylvania where there's this double envelope thing, so you got to follow the instructions really well. So your 94-year-old grandmother might have a little trouble with it, and you should, you should make sure anybody you know in Pennsylvania it really understands the rules. a little more complicated there. That is not an absentee-friendly state, so they're kind of learning on the fly. Um, but in general, I, I would not worry about it. The Republicans are worried that Trump has scared away Republican absentee ballot voters. The mail system, though, the U.S. mail does have some problems. They're systemic. They've been building for years. If I were going to vote absentee, and I am in California, I would not hold my ballot forever. I'd try to get it in a little early, and you can always go, like Bob said, you can go drop it off at, at polling places. But generally, I don't think you have to be that worried about your absentee ballot. Just mail it a little early this year yeah. uh, would be my yeah. advice. And there's, you know, with COVID precautions, you can vote. Vote in the middle of the day when not a lot of people are there. And many states, go to your Secretary of State website, has early voting where the polling places are open for two weeks and almost nobody's ever there. If you time it right, you can go vote in person there. So I'm, I'm not too worried about that. All right, our final mega question here from our student, LaPaula Parker. What is your opinion on how Trump and Biden handled the BLM movement and the protests that followed as a result? Do you think that this will play an important part in the debates, Bob? Trump wanted it to become the central issue for a while. He wanted to run against Black Lives Matter, conflate peaceful protests with rioters, and allege that Trump was, uh, that Biden was all in favor of the rioters, was soft on the violence. Biden went out to Pittsburgh, gave a very good speech about this, where he condemned the rioters, said they ought to be prosecuted, but also stood up for criminal justice reform. They then spent $45 million on an ad all across the country, laying that position out, making sure that people understood it. This has left Trump in the position for a while of trying to run on an issue where he doesn't lead internally when you ask him polling. Uh, and I think he, he's way behind on can he heal the country. Uh, and the way he acts every day, I think, makes that worse. But he's even behind on handling criminal justice and policing, uh, not by as much. And I, I think that, you know, you generally don't win by debating an issue or running on an issue where you're behind. I 90% agree with it. My view is Trump totally wanted to make it a wedge issue. Uh, but Trump's own racist behavior and rhetoric at times has stripped away his credibility. If he were more subtle, uh, he might have found some energy in that, particularly as I think Biden was a bit slow to respond. I always worry that the woke department in Biden's campaign has a little too much influence. But Biden, to his credit, did eventually respond. And when he did, he did it aggressively. He condemned the rioting. 
He committed that advertising money to make sure he, he pushed the message out. He let the campaign be about it for 12 days and, and, and did pretty well. I got worried again yesterday because I saw some Twitter video, which I tweeted at Murphy Mike, of a bunch of obnoxious, anafe- I don't know, wherever they get the black ninja outfits. And, you know, dad's Prius parked around the corner, these kind of uh, these agitators. And they were, they were hassling a bunch of people in an outdoor restaurant in Florida. Where they were doing that, by the way, being incredibly obnoxious, was one of the 10 most important swing counties in America that's going to decide the election. And I watched it thinking, this is really good for Trump. Uh, and I condemn these groups. I'll bet if you could really look into them, you find some Russian money, because it's all about disrupting our elections and our society and getting us at each other's throats. So I'm all for peaceful protest, but I'm pretty radically hostile uh, to some of these bullying, threatening groups that wander around the street. I was happy today to see Biden taking a tough line because he's got to watch his flank on that. The other thing that I think is surprising in hurting Trump and working for Biden is the argument the Biden campaign has adroitly made, and we're echoing it in our rvet.org television in in Florida, including in that county uh, where this is happening, that with Biden, we get back to normal. America's one team again. The cities aren't on fire because Trump is the arsonist fireman who creates the problem and then wants to you know, get paid to put it out. So this whole idea that Biden's arguing, let's unify the country, get the economy going, beat COVID together, and, and kind of like not live in this Trump nightmare we're in, is incredibly appealing to independent and swing voters. We've tested it. And I think Biden, you saw it in his speech a few days ago, uh, he understands that his campaign does. And so all this disorder that Trump was hoping would create kind of a uh, we need Trump to go put the National Guard on the streets, has instead gotten people even more tired with Trump, which uh, has really given the month of September to Joe. And now Biden's in a good position with 40 days out. So uh, I think boy, Biden has handled it adroitly, but he's got to watch that flank because uh, uh, that is a great way to let Trump get back alive if Biden doesn't continue to have the resilient response to it. Well, Bob, any final words before we wrap it up here? No, we'll be back soon. We'll be back after the debate to talk about what happened. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for those questions. They were terrific. And I wanted to make sure that we left more time for them today. And we did. That was a very good idea. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at at USCPOLFuture, or you can just Google, frankly, and find our website at USC Center for the Political Future and see all the programming we do. There's a ton there. Keep up with our tracking poll every day. Impress your friends. And consider joining our Center Leadership Council to help us do what we do. So until our next R&D election, R&D dialogue, on behalf of my uh, partner in crime, Bob Shrum, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube, and visit our website for upcoming programs.